Well, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6. And we're beginning that portion, as Mark did last week, on the Lord's Prayer, or the model prayer that the Lord gives us. And that is our reading in the uh, scripture reading of the bulletin today is the Lord's Prayer. If you want to recite it along with me, that'll be fine. But I'm reading it as text, not praying it as prayer. And I'm going to back up a couple of verses and pick up at verse 7 for a little context, and then we'll hear the word of the Lord. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The very word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Lord sets up a contrast. We've been talking about the way the scribes and the Pharisees do a lot of things. The way they interpret scripture, the way they live their life the way they exercise their various good works, et cetera, et cetera. Now the Lord moves to how they pray. And how do they pray? Well, they just string together a lot of mantras, slogans, sentences, many words, cliches, aphorisms, who knows what else. That's not the case with the model prayer the Lord gives us. In fact, we are going to treat it as a um, topic between now and Advent. Believe it or not, we're coming up on fall. This long, hot summer is coming to an end. At least the the, uh, season is coming to an end. We'll still have hot weather. But this fall, we'll be preaching through each of the petitions and the the, the, uh, phrases of this prayer right on up until Advent season this fall. And so it, it'll require quite a bit of an examination, but always remember what the Lord is doing is teaching us how to pray. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, in another context, his disciples ask, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray, and the Lord gave them the model prayer. And we're going to look at it in the emphasis on this very first phrase, our Father in heaven answers the question, do whom, to whom do we pray? To whom do we pray? And we pray to our Father in heaven. And what is interesting about this prayer is the Lord already knows our heart and the things that we will ask before we even ask him. We're praying to the great God of heaven and earth. We're praying to the great God of Israel. We're praying to the one who created, who redeems, 
who providentially cares, who worries, as we'll find later, about the sparrow and about all things in particular about his creation. We're praying to a God who is loving, merciful, compassionate. We're praying to the great sovereign of the universe who has become the particular God of a chosen people. The chosen people of God is Israel. Israel is God's chosen people for all eternity. And only those that are of Israel are Israel. And they are God's chosen people. If you're one of God's people today, you are a member of the house of Israel because God's affection is on one people and one people only. First, a tiny lot of patriarchs, a few families, then a few tribes, then a few clans and tribes and then a nation, most of whom did not really trust and believe and follow after their God, keep his commandments, obey his voice, walk in his statutes. They didn't do it. What was more, they didn't even seek it by faith. Book of Hebrews says that they didn't attain the promises that God had given them ultimately because they didn't seek it by faith. And we have learned in hearing the gospel that the gospel is given to us by the grace of God and it is received by us by faith and faith alone. So they're praying to their, their God. They're praying to their sovereign, their king, their majestic leader. There is nothing more important in Israel's ancient history than the notion that the Lord God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, our God, is one. Monotheism, one God, is the truth of Israel's day, and it's the truth this morning. There is but one living, almighty God. And Israel knew that. They knew about the one God. What was less apparent to Israel was the nature of his deity, was the nature of his Godhead. And that is that he was exclusively one God, but in three distinct persons. He made himself known according to many names. The name we think of with Moses, for example, was the name given at the burning bush where the Lord identified himself by the to be verb, the verb of existence, the verb of essence, and said, I am that I am. And God then manifests himself as the eternally existing one. All the attributes of God are spelled out in the law and in the prophets and especially in the Psalms. I've not checked this out myself, but I heard uh, several people say it over the years, good theologians that I respect, as well as I think I read it somewhere in Spurgeon. So if you've read it in Spurgeon, it's pretty much uh, able to be preached. And that is that all of the divine 
attributes of God, the sovereignty of God in everything about him is manifested and taught in the book of Psalms. That when we praise the Lord by singing the five books of the Psalter, we are singing and praising God in all of his manifest glory and in all of his attributes. We're familiar with some, I jotted a few down, his aseity. Do you know what that is? That's God's eternally existent, self-existent attribute. Nobody created God. God has been as he is for all eternity. He is the eternally existent Lord, God, sovereign, almighty. He alone exists by himself, from himself, within himself, for himself. That's why sometimes our gospel gets a little upside down when we start worrying too much about ourselves and our own pathologies and our own needs and our own anxieties. There is a God who is above it all. There is a God who knows it all. He has... He knows what you need before you ask him. When we come before God in prayer, we're coming before someone who has infinitely more knowledge and discernment, of course, than we do. He is known in his, I mentioned his omniscience, his all-knowing. He knows all. He knows the end from the beginning. No one has counseled him. He is the one who purposes all things. Sometimes we get a little pedantic and a little bogged down in our discussions about free will. And we forget that we are just mere mortal, finite in every way, limited beyond measure, and we are talking about our will as opposed to the will of God. The determinative, decretive, permissive will of God. Ponder for a moment who God is in these attributes. His omnipotence, all-powerful. He brought the universe into existence with word, dynamic word and word alone. And we're finding out more and more about this universe and the more we find out, the more we see how much more immense than it possibly is. And so the immensity of God, the immeasurability of God, the immutability of God does not change. God is the same this morning as he was billions and billions and billions of years ago. God is the same. He changes not his immutability. God is simple in that he is not made up of parts. He's not cobbled together by various components of deity, but he is one completely, simply, entirely indivisible. We may parcel out distinctives for purposes of analysis, but we do not divide, separate, or otherwise truncate the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. A few more, his eternality, as I mentioned. He was here before all things began. He's the cause of all things. 
and he has brought everything into existence, his creative power. His ubiquity, his omnipresence is sometimes known. He's everywhere. Not in a sense of being in everything in a pantheistic sense, but being above all things, but all things everywhere. Everywhere in his universe, which is created and finite, and everything beyond his universe. This is the Lord God to whom we pray. This is the Lord God that is high and lifted up in his holiness. His holiness is his other thanness. He is different than anything we know and anything we are. God is not like us. He is not a man that he should lie. His veracity is established, his truthfulness. He is the measuring rod, the very cannon stick for truth itself. And these are attributes of the Father. In his justice, he is absolutely righteous in every way. He's the standard of righteousness. God cannot sin because that would be to go against himself. He will not and he cannot. His standards are righteous. And he has a whole complex of attributes that are known as his benevolence, his goodness, his grace, his love, his mercy. These things are described to us in almost terms of infinity. His mercy endures to a thousand generations. That's probably more than the history of planet Earth. If you figure a generation is 25 to maybe 40 years. Who knows? Who knows these things? The book of Job, along with the book of Psalms, is quite helpful in helping us understand just a glimpse of who God is. And we cannot even begin to know everything about God. In fact, we only know a little bit about God. The secret things belong to the Lord. But those things that he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Deuteronomy 29. But because we cannot know everything about God doesn't lead us to despair that we can know nothing. There is a massive amount of self-disclosure, revelation in God. He has revealed himself. It, literally, the word is apocalypse. He has pulled back the curtain that we can see. He's done it in the universe. And we can see the stars and the heavens and all that is on planet Earth and the Earth... Uh, sky above and the earth below, everything preaches, bears witness, holds its right hand up and swears to the testimony of the existence, the power, the might, and the Godhead of the Lord God Almighty, Romans 1. But because we cannot know everything about God doesn't mean we can know nothing. We can know about his creation, and we can know about his redemption. Sometimes the theologians will call it general revelation and special revelation. It's the revelation that God makes known about what he has done for his creatures. And there we find things revealed. We find in the gospel the righteousness of God revealed from heaven. We find in God's 
wrath, the wrath of God revealed from heaven. God has revealed himself. He has made a self-disclosure. He has made himself known. And God eternally existing as three distinct persons within one divine essence has a harmony and a symmetry and an interrelationship that is beyond our imagination. The theologians call it, and I always leave out one syllable. Sometimes Greek words are hard and little syllables throw in there, but if I can get it pronounced right, it's perichoresis. It is that mutual indwelling among the persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And God is one, and the three persons were revealed even in the Old Covenant. The Spirit of God was everywhere in the Old Testament, from brooding upon the waters of creation all the way through to empowering the craftsmen to build the paraphernalia that made up the tabernacle. God's Spirit was at work in inspiring the prophets, in bringing the law, in filling his servants, not only Moses, but the elders of Israel. God the Holy Spirit was at work all through the Old Testament. The power of God upon the earth accomplishing all of his purposes. And we see that there was always some agency, some human representation of God on earth. At first, it was Adam. Adam created in the image of God was God's vice regent. He was God's human agent upon planet earth. And he was given the mastery of the planet. He was given the responsibility of the earth to dress it, to keep it, to work it, to guard it, to protect it to make it fruitful and multiply. And God always had agency, human agency, on earth. It was Adam, was Noah, was Abraham and the patriarchs. In time, it became Moses and Aaron and the priests. And from the very beginning of the days of Abraham, who is called in scripture a prophet, there was agency in the prophets. People on earth that were speaking God's mind and doing God's will, walking with God, living for God, and advocating and promoting God's word and God's will upon the earth. God had human agency on the earth, but the best was yet to come. And the throbbing heartbeat of all the prophets was, there's gonna be a man that'll be different. He'll be the son of God when he comes in human flesh. These human agents were called men of God. They were called servants of God. They were called even sons of God but they were mere shadows and types, mere Christophanies and reflections, 
types and embodiments. If you'll allow me to say weak and beggarly elements to show the real man of God who was to come. And that brings us to the incarnation of Christ. That brings us to a little strawy manger in Bethlehem. In time, real time, human time, sometime between the great creation day and the great consummation day, in the fullness of time, on God's timetable, God's Son, the very Word of God, the very impress and express of God, the very one that was the active agent in creation by whom he made the world. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him without anything. Nothing was made. Without him, nothing was made. This is Christ. This is the coming. And when Christ comes as the true, incarnate, eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, we call him, was perfected the humanity. The image in which Adam had been created and then fell is now being restored in a second Adam. And now God has his son on earth to bring to us an exposure of a relationship. That relationship is the relationship between a father and a son. The almighty God, the I am, the great I am, the holy one of Israel is a father. And this was hinted even back in the Old Testament. Let me just read one passage of scripture there and, uh, and I'll, I'll be done for this, this portion. But toward the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah, most of you studied Isaiah, recognize that Isaiah begins to become more and more high and lifted up, seeing more of the future, looking down the corridors of time, seeing things like the redeemed people of God, the church, the end times, the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth, as we get to these latter chapters. But notice a couple of phrases. I won't preach the context. I'll just give you the phrase. In Isaiah chapter six, uh, 63, verse 16, For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old in your name. And then in, in verse, uh, I mean, chapter 64 again. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. The notion of the fatherhood of God is revealed to us in its absolute brilliance in the sonship of Christ. Now, since we're out of time, we're just going to have to finish up with one sentence. Christ, the true Son of God, who insisted that He had come from above, He had come down from the Father, He had come down to humanity, now tells us that we must have that same origin. We must be born from above. We must be born from above. And when we are, we are sons of God with Christ Jesus. And now we're able to address in our prayer 
bearing in mind all of the greatness of God Almighty, but we think of him now in this new relationship which we shall flesh out as a father. And if you think about it, it's all the difference in the world. No matter what a man is like, he is a father to his children. And God, the God we know from Revelation, is a father to us. And when we come to him in prayer, this is how we pray. Father, heaven. Heaven.